Um, I have a note on here. I was supposed to share something else with you before I did my sermon, <laughs> but I'm a sinner. What can I say? So um, if you are interested in that HEART uh, program, the HEART Academy, uh, we are working on a scholarship program for that. And so I know cost can be an issue for families. We don't have all the details ironed out, but we are working on a scholarship program. So that's what I was supposed to say. Uh, forgive me. But last Monday, I went home for lunch. It was a bright, crisp, sunny day out. And after eating, my wife and I went over to the family room. We opened up the curtains to our south-facing window, and the sun was out. Do you remember Monday when the sun was out? What a beautiful day. And the, the warm light of the sun streamed into the room. It just warmed us to the bone. And, you know, I rolled up my sleeves, and I sat there by, with my seven-year-old and my wife, and we put our arms out by the window, and the sun was just shining on our arms, and we just warmed up, and we put our arms up, and we were, like, hoping that our neighbors weren't watching us as we're standing by the window sunbathing. But it was just a beautiful day. It was a beautiful day. And, I for, and as I looked out over my backyard, I noticed my apple trees. And I had kind of forgotten about my apple trees because I've been buried in snow, uh, as you have, in my backyard. And so as I looked out and saw those apple trees, I just... I remembered we just planted them a couple years ago. They're about a year and a half old. We've got a Granny Smith tree. We've got a, a Honeycrisp tree out there, uh, one for eating and one for uh, baking. And uh, last year, they produced a few apples, not very many. You know, when we planted them, we followed all the instructions. Uh, we talked to the, the, you know, the expert gardener uh, where we bought the trees from, and they told us what to do with the soil, the native soil, and some uh, nutrient-rich soil, and how you mix those together, and you know, digging instructions and spacing and how much light they need and uh, how to water them. And, and we've been trying to take care of them. We've got to figure out a way to keep some of the bugs off and the deer. We've got to keep the deer off too. We've got to figure out some of those things, right? But, <clears throat> you know, part of the idea was uh, that those trees would produce fruit because my kids love apples and they love playing in the backyard. And why not just pick an apple and eat some snacks while they're back there having fun, right? Um, now, I know that they need a, a little bit extra help, and one thing that they do need is something that I have no experience in, and it's pruning. Anybody out there done a little bit of pruning on their trees? Yeah? Um, so I know that when you prune trees, though, because I've done some research, it increases the fruitfulness for years and years to come. While pruning, you cut off both dead branches and living branches, you increase airflow to the tree, you drive nutrients in the direction the tree needs to grow for optimal fruitfulness. And um, I know for me, I'm going to make mistakes, and so my wife may have to take over for me if I make too many. But over time, I hope to become proficient. Now, you know, opening the window to see those fruit trees, um, it, it's a little bit of what the disciples experienced as Jesus taught this valuable lesson. You know, John chapter 15, it's set on the night of the Passover, right before Jesus was uh, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they had sat down to that Passover meal. They'd eaten together. And Judas Iscariot had gotten up and left already. And they had left the meal behind and were likely on their way to the Mount of Olives as Jesus was doing this teaching. On the way, they uh, would pass by the, the temple. And the temple was a marvel of the ancient world. 
and especially noted for the, the gates. Those gates were gates of bronze. They were forged in Greece, floated across the Hellespont, the Mediterranean to Judea, and they were brought up to Jerusalem. And um, it was one of Herod the Great's greatest accomplishments. Um, and those gates being massive bronze structures, also on them were wrought golden vines, these vines made of gold. So these, these bronze gates and then vines of gold. And, and it was common for people who wanted to make a donation. Uh, they would donate a little bit of gold and they could add to the vine. Uh, they could add a cluster of grapes if they were wealthy or a single leaf or a single grape. And, but why exactly a vine? Well, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was referred to as the vine of the Lord, for better or for worse, for them. Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9 says, You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. Isaiah chapter 5 says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So they were supposed to be the vine uh, of the Lord, but they weren't producing the right kind of fruit. But for the Israelite, you know, being connected to the nation and especially the temple where God was present and, and was to be worshiped was, you know, the true way to live a fruitful life. It was to be uh, fruitful for the Lord as an Israelite, you had to be connected to the temple. And so the golden vine on the temple doors, a prudent picture of that. And as Jesus and his disciples were walking by those beautiful doors with the vine, and then they went down the Kidron Valley, and then they went up the, the Mount of Olives, which in your mind, it might be, that's, that's quite the walk, but um, I was on Google Earth the other day, and I was mapping it out. And if you, were walk, if you walk from here to go pick up your kids in children's ministry, and then took them over to breakfast and then walked back out to your car, it's the same distance. It's really not that far away from where the temple was down the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives. And um, as, as you go up the, from the Kidron Valley and you start going up the Mount of Olives, um, there's vineyards. There's still vineyards to this day um, on that hillside. And they would be then going from the vine that was on the temple gates and they'd be going through these vineyards. And it was in this setting that Jesus was talking about the vine and the branches. Surely Israel was the vine discussed in the Old Testament, but as Jesus starts out this passage, he says, I am the true vine. That Greek word, uh, elephinos, doesn't necessarily mean that Israel was a fake vine, but that Jesus was just the true vine the genuine vine, the sincere vine, the original vine. And kind of the, the picture of the true vine versus the, the not the true vine is how we have two lights in the sky, right? Those two great lights that the Lord created. We've got the sun and the moon, but only one of them is true light, right? The moon reflects the light from the sun. The sun is the true light. And in, in the same way, Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God, is the true vine. He's the true source of life. And it's through being connected to Christ that a human being can really be fruitful. So for the, the disciples, you know, they thought it was being connected to Israel. And Jesus is saying, no, it's being connected to me. The Israelites were supposed to be connected to God, and they were supposed to be fruitful, but they weren't producing that fruit. They need, people need to be connected to Jesus. So Jesus calls himself the true vine, and his disciples are the branches. And we understand that the nourishment for the branches come from the sap originating in the vine. Um, I don't know how many of you guys in that windstorm back in, uh, when winter started in October, do you guys remember when that happened? Um, it had, how many of you guys had branches come down in your yard? Like, I had branches come down. And uh, the branch came down, and they started withering, and um, I didn't get to all of them, sadly. And then they got buried by snow, but I'm gonna get to them this spring. As soon as the snow is gone, I'm gonna get to them. And I expect them to be not alive, right? Because they fell off the tree. They're not connected to the tree anymore. They're gonna be withered. They're gonna be uh, in the process of decaying. They're not gonna be full of life anymore. And so we understand that they need to be connected to the, the trunk to get that sap. That in, inside the sap is the source of life needed for the branch to remain alive and to bear fruit. Um, it's interesting though, with a tree, you could do something with those branches that are cut. You know, with, with the tree, like for me in my yard, uh, it was a big, a big maple tree, dropped this huge branch. And you know, I could, if I was a handyman and a craftsman, I could turn that branch into something beautiful. Um, I'm not that thing at all, but somebody else could do it if they wanted to. But uh, a vine branch that Jesus is talking about here, especially that grapevine, those branches have no structural integrity. They have no real value. They're, they're brittle, they have no strength to them. They're really not good for anything. And so what they're good for is kindling and firewood. And you know, I think some people have mistakenly thinking or thought that um, a believer who falls away from the Lord or maybe just isn't as fruitful in their life are going to lose their salvation. But you know, I would contend that the picture that they, that's being drawn here is more the picture of somebody like Judas Iscariot. Um, the man who apostates from the Lord was never truly connected to the vine. He was never really of the Lord. You know, to graft a branch to a vine, there has to be a cutting that takes place, a binding, and then a true acceptance and adherence. And a man who falls away from the Lord may have been lashed to the vine, they may have, he may, may have been tied to it, but never really cut to the heart, never really born into that vine, never made a life-transferring connection to Christ. There are people who attend church and may have done so for years, but if they don't have that vital connection to Christ, they're really not born again. They don't really belong to him. They only have a superficial connection to Christ. Whether they're there to network, whether they're there because their friends are there or obligation to family, or maybe they just want to be profitable, when that lashing is cut, when that binding is cut, the branch simply falls away. And so we remember that's what happened to Judas Iscariot. Uh, he, the, the enemy, the evil one, Satan put something in his heart and he saw a chance to make money and he just fell away. It was more profitable for him to do that. 
And so uh, Judas later was cut off by the Lord for what he'd done. And Jesus says in this passage, he says to his disciples, you're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. But earlier in the evening when Judas was present, he said, those of you who have a bath need only to wash their feet and their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone, John 13, 10 through 11. So we see that not everyone who claims the name of Christ is truly of him. And so, you know, we're just going into a new year. And in this time, I think a lot of people make resolutions about the things that they want to change for this upcoming year. Um, I think most of those resolutions are positive. I've never really heard somebody say, this year I want to put on a few pounds. I want to gain, gain some weight. I want to binge watch some more TV shows. I would like to make unexpected trips to the doctor. That's my goal. I would like to ruin some more relationships. Those went well for me before. Now, we want to accomplish things, right? We want to, we want to get in shape. We want to eat healthier. We want to read more. We want to do that house project. Spend time with loved ones. Start a business. Develop your skills. And I think we long to accomplish these things because of a desire that God's placed in us. In the beginning, when God created man, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the ground. The start of a new year is a natural time to sit and reflect on how we want to be fruitful, what, to, what we want to accomplish. And as I sat around during the holidays, um, counting the hours until I could come back to work so that I wouldn't have to lose at board games again, over and over and over again to my wife and children. I contemplated what I really wanted to accomplish this year. And as I came across this passage in my daily Bible reading, I realized that of all the things that I want to accomplish, and I've got things I want to do in my house, in my yard, and the, really, the thing that I want most is to be fruitful for Jesus, amen? I want to be fruitful for the Lord. I want to be so connected then to Christ that the natural and seemingly effortless result of my life is the production of a fruit for others that contains in itself the seed of life, the good news of Jesus. And so the temptation is then to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and start running to and fro to keep busy for the Lord. But here we must heed the words of Christ where he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You are a living, breathing human being. There's lots of us human beings running around across this earth trying to do stuff. But he says, apart from him, you can do nothing. You're not really doing anything. Apart from Christ, we're dead men walking. Without the Lord, you can't really be fruitful in this life. Without the Lord, you're like Cain, presenting an armful of hard work only for it to fall right off the altar is unacceptable to the Lord. See, in the picture of the vine and the branches, we notice that the, the branches are not the active agent. Now certainly we're instructed to remain in Christ, just as the disciples were in this passage, but Christ gives the illustration. The branches act as a conduit through which the life flows, the sap flows through to the branches with the end goal of creating fruit. And fruit is commonplace enough. I mean, we go all the time. I was just at the store the other day. Uh, we did a, uh, a store pickup, and I got a bunch of apples. 
and some of the apples were bad. So I went back to the store and I got some more apples and I mean, you guys know what it's like. It's just, it's part of the process. But uh, when we think about fruit, fruits created by the branch with twofold gold, a goal. One is to nourish others, but two, it's to reproduce the plant. You know, my apple trees, I want to bear apples so we can eat them. Uh, in the same way the fruit of God comes through you, it's, it's meant to be a blessing for other people. When, the, when God is fruitful through you in your life, it's so that people might taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so the fruit of God in your life is to be a nourishing uh, and a blessing to other people. But also that fruit contains in it the seed. When fruits consume, the seeds can be saved. When you slice open an apple, you see the seeds are there. You slice open a grape, you see the seeds are there. The seeds can be saved, dried, scattered, whatever the process is for that particular fruit, and buried so that the that more fruit might eventually be made. In the same way, the fruit of God that comes through you is meant to bring others the saving knowledge of God through his son, Jesus Christ, that they might enjoy eternal life. Certainly when I think of being fruitful, you think with me of making disciples. And, uh, you know, J. Vernon McGee in his commentary says here, you know, discipleship is more the byproduct of being fruitful. The fruit comes first, and then discipleship follows from that. You know, Galatians tells us what the fruit is. It's no real mystery. In Galatians 5, we're told that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it's interesting that immediately following our reading today, if we were to continue on into verses 9 uh, and 10, Jesus says, now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. And then he says, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Interesting, he talks about love and joy, which are the two first fruits of being connected to the Spirit. So it's out of abiding in Christ that this fruit comes. And in this fruit from Christ, the gospel is resident. It's the gospel is in the seed. And the seed of the fruit is the potential for new life. For the man in Christ has within himself the spirit of the living God, born by accepting the good news of Jesus. So if you're in Christ, then the good news, good news of Christ resides in you, that's powerful. When that's shared with other people, it could have eternal life-changing impact on them that they might know Christ as well. When people experience the love of God through you, the joy of the Lord through you, the gentleness of Christ through you, they're tasting the goodness of God, and the seed of the gospel is in there. In my desire to become more fruitful for God, as I was praying about it and thinking about it, um, the temptation is also to, to treat it like a New Year's resolution. Okay, I'm just going to do this more. I'm going to pray more, I'm going to study more, I'm going to serve more, I'm going to worship more, I'm going to go to church more. And in that, there's a, a human striving. There's a striving for, for even good things that can result in, in weariness because, as Galatians said, what you started by the Spirit are you trying to accomplish by merely human effort. 
And in this passage, it seems like the only thing the branches are supposed to do is abide, is to remain in, in the vine, to draw near to Jesus. The gardener is the one who makes the branch more productive. Jesus tells us that the gardener is the father in heaven. He's the one who prunes the branches to increase its fruitfulness. So if I want to become fruitful for the Lord, then I must draw near to Jesus and learn to accept and embrace the seasons of pruning where the Father is working on me. If your prayer like mine is to become more fruitful for Christ, I think there's ways that the Father prunes you. The first thing that he does is he cuts off dead wood. Dead wood weighs down the plant, it distracts the branch from focusing on parts that are truly alive. And it, it doesn't matter how long the dead wood has been around or how cool the dead wood looks, the dead wood also runs the risk of introducing disease and pests into the branch, could compromise the entire branch. So it's like the things in your life. What things in your life are dead wood that you've been hauling around for a long time that the Lord is desiring to cut out. And if he does cut that out, are you okay with it? What activities, what parts of your character, desires, and motives of your heart, things that really have no place for the man of Christ, what things have you been lugging around for so long? The Father goes through the life of the believer and cuts away these distractions. But the second thing that he does, he doesn't just cut dead wood, he cuts out living wood, even parts that have been fruitful. And this is the more surprising part of pruning. Uh, I remember when I first saw somebody prune a bush, they started cutting away all this live stuff. And I thought to myself, they're gonna kill it. What are they doing? But then the bush came back even more and more full. So we think that same thing. Sometimes you're, you're serving in some ministry or you're doing some activity that's proven itself fruitful. And then all of a sudden, it's cut off. It's taken away. And you're, you're stunned. You're like, but Lord, I was serving you. But Lord, I was doing it with my heart. I was, I was trying to help you. I think I, there was one time that I was doing ministry uh, at a coffee shop. I, and um, I was doing two different ministries there for youth ministry and apologetic ministry, and I was just having a blast. It was so fun. I had some co-leaders doing the ministry with me, um, and they let us use this cool room in the coffee shop, but the deal was we had to um, drink coffee from them and order coffee and order snacks and things like that, and so, um, you know, I was, re- I was newly married at the time, and I would go up to the, the barista, and I'd order the stuff, and she would take my coffee card, and she'd punch out the whole coffee card, and she would smile at me in an interesting way, and she'd wave at me and try to find me and talk with me, and it was real awkward, right? She was, uh, she was flirting with me, and um, it just made me feel real uncomfortable, but I, was doing, but I was doing ministry there, right? So I was like, okay, what am I supposed to do? And I remember there was this night, um, and I, I had a dream, and uh, in this dream, I... Um, I was in a, a, a beautiful setting. It was like this ancient Roman or, or Persian uh, hallway with a marble colonnade and um, tapestries and curtains. Uh, it was just gorgeous. It was royal. And in the middle of the room, there was this beautiful woman uh, uh, garbed in purple. 
and she started to try to undress right in front of me. And I woke up from the dream immediately, and it was like, the dream felt so real. Um, and I was like scared. I was like, Lord, what was that? And I felt like the Lord said to me, um, that's the lady Jezebel, and she's coming for you. And I was like, well, who's Jezebel? Um, so I had to look it up. And uh, in, the, in Revelation to the church in Thyatira, um, there's a woman named Jezebel who, what she was doing was she was leading the young men in the church into sexual immorality. And the Lord said, I've spoken to her, and if she doesn't, I've given her time to repent, and if she doesn't repent, I'm going to throw her on a, on a sickbed, and I'm going to kill her and her children and the men who are committing the sin with her. And as I read that, I was like, Lord, you do whatever you need to do to protect me in, in my integrity and in my marriage. And it was interesting because that week, uh, one of the guys gave me a call who was co-leading, and he's like, hey, I don't know why, but the Lord put on my heart, we need to stop doing the ministry. And then the next day, the other guy who was co-leading with me gave me a call and said, hey, I think it's time that we need to uh, uh, close the ministry uh, and the season's over for my life. And, uh, and so I never went back to that coffee shop again. And the Lord shut down the coffee shop for good measure. Never seen that lady again in my life, right? <laughs> and um, I was like, thank you, Jesus, right? Because he saved me, he delivered me. And he cut off something that was fruitful and something that was good in my life. And I'm just appreciative of that because he was sparing me and he was gonna open up other opportunities for me to do other ministries. And so, you know, even though it's like, Lord, I did this to serve you, God had other things in mind and that's okay. And so as the Lord prunes your life and cuts things out, even good things out, you have to learn to say, okay, Lord, this is your will. And you want me to become more fruitful. And I trust you in that. But perhaps the most difficult pruning comes when the Lord cuts you through a really difficult circumstance. The tragedy of losing a loved one. The heartache of prodigal children. The failure of a business crop. Great financial loss. Devastating medical diagnosis. And these things happen and we say, why God? Why? Like, why? And you're in that storm of life. But the comfort comes in the hard realization that the father is a master. He's the master pruner. He's not like me. I'm going to go take a hack at my apple tree and we're going to see what happens, right? It may turn out good. It may turn out bad, but I'm a total novice and I don't know what's going to happen. But the father, as he prunes you in your life, is a master. He knows exactly what angle to cut. He knows where to cut. He knows how much to cut. He knows what season to cut. He's the master to produce optimal fruit in your life. He's precise. And at the time, you can't see it. You're like, what's happening? You're cutting off all these things from my life. But do you trust the Father? Do you trust him that he is the master? Another thing that we see in the pruning aspect is that this is, this is regular. This is going to happen regularly as long as you're alive. You go through a season of difficulty, a season of pruning, and you're like, wow, I'm, I'm glad I got that over with, right? But every season, the vine dresser goes through the vineyard, trimming the branches that need it. So perhaps you were recently pruned, and you think, hey, man, that's over. 
know that the Father is going to continue through your life to cut things out. So be prepared for it. Be ready for it. Steal your mind and heart to know that this is par for the course for a man or a woman whom the Father loves. And also, think of it this way too. Jesus says, every branch that is not a part of me is just thrown away. But every branch that bears fruit is pruned so that it will become more fruitful. If you're in a season of being pruned by the Lord, it's because you've been fruitful and the Lord wants you to become even more fruitful. So take it as a compliment that the Lord sees that you're doing things for him and he wants you to become even more fruitful. He sees that potential. He sees Christ in you and he's gonna take you through this so that you can become more fruitful for him. Because we must know that all this pruning is intended to bring a greater harvest of fruit. There perhaps drew when hardships happen in my life, it's because I'm lacking in love. And maybe I don't see it, maybe I do see it, but God wants to expand your ability to, your ability to love. Or you're lacking in joy, and God wants you to truly enjoy his walk, your walk with him. Or your life, you're missing out on peace, And he wants you to know that even still, regardless of whatever happens, regardless of what's pruned out or the difficulties that come, it is well with your soul. You can have peace with the Lord. When you're in that season of of pruning, read over Galatians 5 and know that it's for a radical multiplication of these attributes that God brings such things into your life and trust him in the process. As we read through this passage, have read through it together, there's a question that arises. You know, how, okay, I'm supposed to remain in Christ. How do I remain in Christ? How do I abide in Christ? Uh, but Jesus tells us two complementary truths. The first in verse three, he says, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. You know, if somebody were to come to church today, maybe before service, and they were to say, hey, Drew, what's the word for us today? Um, it's not going to be like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Like, that's not the word they're looking for, right? You know, what, you know what they mean. What's the message? What's the idea? What's the point? What's the theme? What's the thrust of the sermon today? What's, what's the big idea? What's the word, right? It's not a single word. It's, it's the idea. And when Jesus says, you're already clean because of the word, That word is logos. It's the same thing. It's what's the idea? What's the message? What's the theme? And it's interesting, though, because that Greek word logos is the very word that the gospel of John starts off with, right? The gospel of John begins, and it says, in the beginning was the word, logos. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the word. Accepting Jesus cleanses you. Accepting Jesus purges you. It's interesting too because that that word, you are already clean, that word clean is the same root word as the word for prune. To clean, to purge, to cleanse. It's the same idea. You're already clean because of the word. Have you accepted Jesus? Have you accepted the word into your life? 
accepting the good news that Jesus has come, accepting the salvation of Christ, embracing Jesus, the Son of God, is the very thing that makes you clean. But the second thing he says, that was in verse 2. In verse 7, he says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. So in verse 2, it was singular, the word. But in verse 7, it's my words, Ramata. There's something very different about Jesus. He's unlike the wise men of this world. At home, my wife and I, uh, we have tea. So up in our cupboard, we've got boxes of tea. And last night, we had tea together. And um, perhaps you have the same kind of tea as me. Uh, this tea bag, it's connected to a string with a tag on the end, right? It's not a new invention, Drew. I know that. Okay. Um, but on the little tag of this uh, brand, they've got profound quotes from historic people. And um, as your tea is steeping there, you read that and you're like, wow, that's deep. And then you throw it away in the garbage after it's done steeping, right? Um, it's like fortune cookies for wannabe Brits. Um, but, but the words of the Lord aren't like that, right? The words of the Lord aren't taken in that way. When I was a kid, the only redeeming aspect of church was the cinnamon sugar donut holes. You guys know those? Uh, that made church palatable for me. And I remember coming to Sunday school one morning um, after getting those donut holes, and I sat hoping nobody would call on me uh, in Sunday school class because I was shy, and I didn't know much about the Bible, and I was always embarrassed when I got called on because I didn't want to talk in front of people. And that's worked out well for me in life. <laughs> and I remember sitting there as they taught about Jesus' parable on the Good Samaritan. And as that little kid who didn't want to be there, because I already had my donuts, um, at that young, squirrely age, I thought to myself, there is something about Jesus that is different. Jesus isn't like anybody else I know. He's not like my teachers. He's not like my coaches. He's not like my parents. He's not like my friends. Jesus is different. He's different than everybody else. His words are unlike anything I've ever heard. Because when Jesus speaks, his words are the words of eternal life. Do those words of Christ echo in your heart? Do his words come back to you to remind you of the path of righteousness in your time of need? Do you take his words to heart and put them into practice as commands from a great and glorious God? Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure but by living according to the word? Do you put those into practice or do you te te uh, treat them like the tag on the T where it piques your interest for a moment but then you discard it, discard it as rubbish? His words are life. Every word from the Lord is profitable, coming from the giver of life himself. So is Christ treasured as the word in your heart are his words jewels that reflect the glory of God in your life? If you're like me, then you might read the Bible regularly, and it might apply to your day that day or not. But if you're like me too, there are those times and those moments where you're in the middle of a situation, and otherwise you wouldn't know what to do, but all of a sudden the word of God comes to mind. You've had those situations, right, where the word just comes up, it just comes up in that perfect moment and you say something or in that perfect moment and, and, and you're, you're obedient to it and it was just like a fresh wind from the Lord, like a fresh breath. 
from him. And you're like, wow. It's the word of God. It's the words of Christ. Jesus says in verses 10 and 12 here, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Do you consider that the words of Christ, his teachings, not to just be something that's profound that should be put on a tea bag, but do you consider his teachings commands from a great king worthy of obedience? Accept the word. Accept the word as a treasure in your life where every, every word that comes from his lip is just a precious drop of water in a desert world. When you abide in Christ by accepting him and his teachings, something else happens besides having your character changed by him. Your prayers become increasingly more effectual. And it's not like because you're gaining like power, like mystical power or anything like that. It's really for two reasons. When you abide in Christ, you pray. You actually pray. Um, when you're young in Christ, you think that life is found somewhere else like out there. And you grow like a wild vine, grasping for life wherever you might find it. But as the Father prunes you back over and over again, shedding your dead wood and unproductive growth, you learn what, you should, have, what should have been obvious from the very beginning, that life comes from the vine. That life comes from Jesus, from knowing him and being known by him. And so you search less and less out there for answers and fulfillment, and you come back more and more to the source of Christ. All along, he's been, he's been the source, Jesus. And a key part of that vital relationship is prayer. It's fellowship with God. It's communication with him. It's, as, as the word tells us, we have the spirit of God in us which cries out, Abba, Father. We, we, it just cries out. It comes out of us. Father, help. The driving force is not the guilt of a preacher. It's the realization that for real life, I go to him. And so as you abide in Christ, you're drawn to just, to just pray. You're drawn to talk with the Lord. And you also, you pray in accordance with the Spirit. As you begin embracing Christ, you begin embracing his words, it challenges the desires of your heart. You know, we're all men and women of the flesh. Uh, we're trained by the culture of this world to set our hearts on the desires of the flesh. We even... As Christians, we can orient our prayers to satisfy or continue to satisfy our worldly ambitions. And this is why James tells us that many of our prayers go unanswered. In James 4.3, he says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Ouch, right? Ouch. Really, Lord? Ouch. But as the Lord prunes us in life, oftentimes that he prunes us from enjoying pleasures we've grown accustomed to. We're again forced to rely on the life that we have in Christ. We, we find that our prayers shift to things that are true, things that are real, genuine, and things that are of eternal significance as well, the things of the Spirit. And so we pray, Lord, how might I become more fruitful? I can't see how I can become more fruitful. I can't see how I'll ever stop doing this or stop being like that. But Lord, help me so that I can be fruitful for your kingdom. You know, I've told you before, I used to play baseball in school. In the winter, we'd get up uh, and go to the gym 6 a.m. for training, drills, weightlifting. 
after schools, we'd hit the, spent, uh, the gym and we'd spend hours in practice afterwards. Um, I would dish out my own money on cleats, pants, socks, jerseys, jackets, gloves, hats, bats, balls, other gear. I had these cool flip-up sunglasses when I was an outfielder. The sun was there. I could put down the glasses real quick, you know. And um, my weekends were spent traveling around doing scrimmages and tournaments and games, but it paid off when the stands erupted in cheers after a great play or a walk-off hit or a division-clenching win. You know, we were seeking glory, some of us only for ourselves, but, but we found that that glory of the moment always faded, and it always faded too quickly, right? Jesus tells us that in this life, in him, the pruning, the fruit, the abiding in Christ, the prayer, it's all that the Father may be glorified. But the catch is, when God is glorified, we're glorified with him, when we're in Christ. The Lord will declare that we're his, and that he's proud of us in the presence of the angels and the saints in heaven. When God is glorified, we're glorified with him. While we walk this earth, we're required to live a life of faith. Faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we do not see. But there will come a day when we enter into the presence of the glory of God. And there at his throne, with countless saints and multitudes of angels, we'll behold his majesty. And there we say, you are worthy, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your, your will, they were created and have their being. Revelations 4.11. So friends, abide in Christ this year. Set your hearts on being fruitful for him. So draw near to him. Abide in him. And look forward to a glory that never fades. John 15, 1-8, I'll read it again for you. I am the true vine, and my father is the keeper of the vineyard. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes to make it even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Just as no branch can bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. The one who remains in me, and I in him, will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are gathered up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, proving yourselves to be my disciples.